When a serial killer is active, they are living out a fantasy, playing on a loop inside their head. And make no mistake, serial killers commit murder because they enjoy it. Rare amongst those is the female wolf in sheep's clothing. That neighbor, that coworker, that family member you'd least likely suspect to be a diabolical serial murderer. My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Welcome to Crossing the Line. As always, I'm joined by my producer, Everett. Everett, how are you? How's your week? It's been good. You're always good. Yeah. I like that. I, I try like to that. look at things with the glass half full. No point to worry before there's something to worry about. That glass half full kind of rings a bad bell for me this week, actually. I am a glass full guy. Yeah. How's your week been? How are the renovations going at the lake house? My week has not been terribly good. The lake house renovations are going well, but I did lose my wallet and my phone and my keys in the water Oh no! near the lake house. And I spent the other day in the water, 50 degrees out. How's that happen? Did you just fall in? No, uh, you know, the lake house, I bought basically a shed and I'm mm -hmm. trying to renovate it. And so it's down a cliff and I have to bring materials over there and garbage out by boat. It's the only way to get it there. So I was bringing some materials out there. The wind kicked up and kind of just pushed my boat all the way around. I slammed into a dock. The boat tipped. All my stuff went in the water, but I didn't know it. So I turned around and I started heading towards my destination and I oh, looked down no. and I'm like, shit. Everything's gone. Not only that, I had some money in my wallet for my workers that were working at the lake house. And it's gone? I found the phone because somebody texted me and I looked down in the water, the phone lit up. Whoa. So props to Apple for the new waterproof iPhone because I can attest that it works. Wow. Okay. But enough about me. You know what? There's people out there who lose their wallet and that's the rent money. I didn't lose my rent money, so I'm good. I can replace everything, the cards. I'm grateful that I'm able to do that. Well, that's looking at the glass half full. There you go. We have to. Yeah. So tell me about what you recommend this week. That's what I want to hear. Well, I want to start it with a question for you, actually. Would you say that you have a good memory? Yes. Like if something traumatic happened to you 20 years ago, do you think you can recall all the events or? I remember traumatic events. Yes. So there's this great four-part docuseries that's out right now called Buried. It's on Showtime. Um, the finale airs this weekend, actually, and I've got an advanced screener, and so I've seen it already. It's great. It's about a woman named Eileen Franklin, who in 1989 came forward with this claim that she had recovered some repressed memories of watching her father kill her eight-year-old best friend. Wow. It was the first murder case in U.S. history that relied on recovered memories, which ah. today, you know, is still considered something of a pseudoscience. It was fascinating. The case had no evidence, no DNA. It just relied on the memory of this woman, which, you know, it's technically not how we should be deciding the fate of someone on trial. Let me ask something. How did they get her to recall? Was it EMDR? You know, it's questionable whether or not she was hypnotized or not. So that's Ooh. a whole other conversation to be had, but it opened up the concept of repressed memories and bringing yeah. it into the court. And 
they're saying that's why a lot of times in the 90s, we started having more women step forward and talk about things that happened to them as children. On top of that, the series itself was really interesting. There's just a lot more to the story about more memories possibly surfacing, what the father was really like, and if he may have been involved in more homicides, and how the Hmm. media attention and the accusations essentially tore this family apart. I highly recommend it. I was fascinated just the idea of repressed memory because I think I have a horrible memory. And so the idea of... Wait till you turn 50. (laughs) What about you? What about any news headlines happening right now that are getting your attention? One thing I want to mention is, and I covered this case on Dark Minds on Investigation Discovery, the I-70 killer. So St. Charles Police Department in Missouri... Missouri. They released a new sketch from a serial killer case that dates back to the early 90s. So this guy drove around and he kind of picked people off with a weapon, with a gun. And they had a description of this guy from one of the victims who actually saw him that he didn't shoot. So I just want to mention quickly that they released a new sketch of the I-70 killer and it's kind of age progression. Mm. And the earlier sketch... What's weird about it for me is I can't get it out of my head that this sketch, the early sketch, looks just like my daughter's friend's brother. It's obviously (laughs) not him. But every time I look at this sketch, I think of that kid. Oh, no, this poor guy. (laughs) (laughs) But no, there's a new age-enhanced sketch. And I think, you know, if you're a true crime fan or maybe you live in that area and... Go take a look at the sketch online. Yep. Speaking of serial killers, this week we're really taking a detailed look at one of the rarest type of serial killers. It's not a man stalking his victims or picking up a child for a ride home. It's very literally not the boogeyman at all. Sometimes the serial killer is a female. Everett, get us into today's case, would you? Sure. To neighbors, Dorothea Puente seemed like the sweetest little old lady on the block. She set up her home as a safe place for the unhoused and elderly promising to care for them. And then she murdered them. Exactly. Female serial killers in general are a very rare breed. It seems from all the coverage they get, serial killers are everywhere. Right. I've found in my research, the male serial killer is a rare enough breed. Serial murder is just not something that occurs all that much. But we wouldn't know that because the amount of documentaries and books and podcasts that have come out about them. That stuff has gone up probably one, two, three thousand percent over the past 10 years where serial killing has gone down, actually. So it's part of the reason we're still talking about Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy. And every year there's five documentaries on Dahmer and Son of Sam and Zodiac. I mean, we just keep regurgitating these old stories. The other reason is that over the past 30 years, serial killing itself has dramatically declined. By about 85%. Whoa. Yeah, that's a hard number to swallow for those who watch Netflix every night. And But what about for the female serial killer? Extremely, extremely rare. Women account for about 11% of all serial murder cases over the past 100 years. The most recent decade, that number drops from 11 to 5 to 7%. So think about it this way. Out of all the serial killer cases, female killers account for a little over 10% of them. And over the past decade, that number drops to like 6%. 85% is an enormous drop, right? Yeah. There's reasons for that. 
I've done research. Uh, I've talked to people. I have a pretty good idea why it's dropped off by 85%. But mm-hmm. I mean, what do you think? I think there's several reasons. I would think, obviously, with time, we've developed better forensics, better science. There's more awareness. That's why stranger danger was such a thing back when I was young. You're hitting the nail a little bit there, yeah. Technology. There's cell phones now and tracking devices. Cameras are everywhere. I think what you hit on mostly is people are more aware. It's not that, oh my God, there's a serial killer over there in the bush, run. I don't mean that. I just mean that people aren't doing what they used to do anymore, putting themselves in a position. So there's more police now than there was 100 There's the awareness that you are being watched. There's cameras everywhere. So there's, right. Right? So you're, right. you're not going to get away with the kind of things they did in the 70s and 80s. Right. You're going to kill a little bit differently if you're a serial killer. You're going to choose your victims a little bit more carefully and differently, but you're not going to stop. Could you say that mental health awareness over the years has maybe played an effect? No, because a serial killer isn't mentally ill. Some could argue that. No, that's not an argument. That's a fact. I mean, you a, a serial killer can have mental illness, but a serial killer is not mentally ill. Serial killing is not a mental illness. Okay. Clinically, yeah, you're not diagnosed as a serial killer, but a lot of serial killers have mental illness. They have some mental illnesses, but that's not what's making them kill. Because if, if that's true, you're saying mentally ill people should be serial killers then. That's what you're no, saying. No, not they should, but maybe the awareness and the help that has been out there now, it's been helping potential crimes from happening. Doesn't work that way. You know, there's certain warning signs that we know of with serial killers. Now knowing what we know with studies come from an abuseful household, maybe were dropped on the head and had a head injury at one point, killed animals. See, these are all the tropes that this sensationalized version of serial killing has put out there on TV and stuff. Sure, but it also is a fact that those are very similar traits among The famous ones that we know of, like the Bundys. They're anomalies. There's a small amount of the serial killers. So Right, but there is a small percentage of serial killers in the world. They're not very common. And of that small percentage, they do have some common traits. Well, yeah, they all have common traits. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that psychologically speaking, A, you're you're kind of born a psychopath. So... Uh, That's the first wire in the serial killer's brain. And then maybe you grow up in a household where we say abusive household, but in a serial killer's world, abusive household means torture. It's not a spanking or a beating once in a while. This is torture stuff. In most serial killers, there's addiction Mm -hmm. of some sort, drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever. So if someone is born a psychopath, with the advances we have in science and psychology, Don't you think that there's more of an opportunity now to be able to catch those kinds of warning signs or be able to prevent someone? Yeah, that can't happen. Not yet. Why? Well, it's a controversial thing to take a brain scan of a child and say, you're a psychopath and then treat him for it. That's very controversial. There's been doctors who've suggested it. Dr. Adrian Rain is one, I believe. I don't think he suggested that specifically, but it's like, well, if we can see it in the scans, then we can treat it early. But that's very controversial. With a psychopath, there's not much you can do really to change that. They lack empathy. 
They right. lack sympathy. They can't love. They don't have the capacity to love someone. So mm -hmm. you can't put that into their brain because it's not there. And a good way I can explain this is I was interviewing one serial killer and I asked him, I said, give me an example of that. What does that mean? Lack of empathy. That's a lack of empathy. What does it mean actually in the real world? He said, well, let me explain something to you. I went to court and I was getting a divorce and my kids were crying. They were young. They were crying, crying, crying in the courtroom. And I kind of liked that. It kind of made me feel good that I was hurting them. Now, hmm. if he'd have stopped there, we'd say that cold son of a bitch. Right. But if we take it to the next step, what he says next, and we take it clinically and we look at it, it's different because he says, and I can't tell you why that made me feel good. It just did. It just did. I don't know why. Did he come from a broken home or yeah. was dropped on the head or kill animals? Wasn't dropped on the head, didn't necessarily kill animals, but his father abused him. I mean, he had some issues with his mom that I could never really get at because he didn't want to talk about it. Right. So this is why I'm interested in it. People ask me, why did you interview one serial killer for seven years? Well, I wanted to figure that out. But anyway, let's get moving on to this story. I'm not sure there's a huge decline more than a better success rate among them, meaning they're going undetected more and more. We just don't right. have the resources to dedicate to serial investigation. You've written extensively about them. Yeah. In fact, I've written three books about female serial killers, and this data is noteworthy. Around 1980, there's this huge spike in the number of active male serial killers in the U.S., and the spike goes like this. It goes from 75 total in 1950 up to 575 in 1970. So 20 years later, there's 500 more. And then 10 years later, there's 125 more. It's up to 700. Huh. So this next number I want to give is more anecdotal data that I've gathered over my many years in the business, talking to law enforcement, you know, detectives, people in the business. There's between one and three active serial killers working, if you will, working with quotes in every major city across the United States. Well, that's terrifying. I guess it is. Guess. Well, no. It, that's terrifying. It's terrifying if you are a particular victim. This all goes back to about 1900. And the data we're relying on here is from Radford University and the Florida Gulf Coast University. So- Here's a bit of interesting data out of those numbers for me. During that entire time, 1950 to 1980, while the male serial killer seemed to be growing, that female serial killer number also showed a spike during the same time, but on a much smaller scale, like literally non-existent from 1950 to 50 in 1980 before dipping back down to almost none by 2010. Well, is there a connecting factor for what motivates these women? Financial gain is generally the biggest motive for the female serial killer. The overall motivating factor for all serial killers is enjoyment. They enjoy it. That's just across the board. And women who kill for enjoyment generally get their kicks in a different way than men, right? Yeah. Most often, women will choose poison to get the job done. Ah, and you have to understand, they kill in a comfortable space. Not so violent. Well, the poison allows them to step away from the violence, right? Less of a mess. 
You know, I also say this in my serial killer talks too. One reason I like writing about female killers and serial killers is that it's more psychological to them. It's more emotional. So whereas the female serial killer will think about this stuff for a long time, the male serial killer can just go out, grab the victim, rape, kill, torture, bang, back to watching TV and drinking a Pepsi, right? And whereas, the women think it through a lot more beforehand. They're sipping that chamomile tea <laughs> thinking, I am going to put that poison in his peanut butter. I'm going to do it tomorrow and I'm going to watch him die. It's premeditated. Serial killers in general are premeditated, but uh, it's just more emotional. It's more psychological. Right. It's like it has has a deeper meaning to yeah. them. Well, so if poison is for female serial killers, what is it for the male serial killers? The number one weapon is a gun. And something we don't talk about because it's not sexy or it's not investigation discovery worthy is there's a lot of serial killers who are in organized crime and in gangs and they use guns and they are psychopaths. They're the chosen one in the group mm. because they can get the job done and not care. Right. Interesting. They can go kill three people and then go have dinner with their family. Yeah. So I, I did write a book about Kristen Gilbert who used epinephrine to kill what I believe and a coroner believes is 100 plus patients at the Leeds uh, Veterans Affairs Hospital in Massachusetts. What kind of drug is that? When you go into cold blue in a hospital, the first drug they give you is epinephrine to get your heart started again. So she would overdose them on epinephrine thinking, I'm going to cover it up, the perfect poison. Wow. She got her kicks from that. She got her kicks from watching this person die. And her case really is textbook for me because it shows the escalation, the evolution of a serial killer where in the beginning, she's killing alone, no one else in the room. Seven years hence, at the end, she's killing people in front of six, seven other people. Wow. You get more confident. Well, I like to say a serial killer is like a heroin addict. You know, you can start off with one bag a day and then you right. need two bags to get high. When you look at a female serial killer, an anomaly is like Eileen Warnes, right? Right. That Charlize Theron played in the movie. See, what's interesting to me is as soon as I mention Eileen Warnes, you go right to the film. Like uh, right. you, you tie it to like popular yep. culture. You see, it's, it's fascinating to me how connected the two are. Right. And I feel like that's the only female serial killer that people know of because of that movie. Monster. Otherwise, we would not know her name. You're right. So let's hit pause for a second. And when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about Dorothea Puente, a sweet little old lady who knew where the bodies were buried. Everett, I'm curious. You suggested we talk about really one of the grisliest female serial killers, Dorothea Puente. Yeah. Why did you choose such a horrific case? <laughs> I came across her name in various things that I've been reading about. But why did it interest you? This is you. I just kind of casually came across her name <laughs> while I was riding in a taxi and saw it on a paper. Well, uh, I mean, it stood out, one, because when you look up her picture, she is your grandmother. She is the lady down the block who bakes cookies and gardens. So that first off, was alarming to me. And then to hear that she is Sacramento's serial killer 
got me more interested. And when I found out her method, because obviously given her appearance and she's very petite, I was interested to see what happened to the bodies. And then I got a little bit more invested and it is the weirdest, craziest case. And I'm confused why we don't know more about this name and we know more about Eileen Warnos. Well, despite looking like a sweet little old lady, she stole, she killed, she buried victims in her backyard. Everett, why don't you fill us in a little bit about Dorothea's background? So she was born Dorothea Gray. She was the sixth of seven children. She was born in 1929 in Redlands, California. Her upbringing was pretty chaotic. Her father was dying of TB when she was about eight years old. And she had a very abusive alcoholic mother who had lost custody of her kids shortly afterwards. And within a year of that, Dorothea's mom was killed in a motorcycle accident. So Dorothea had bounced between foster families and relatives. And she eventually left California when she was just 16 years old. And she had survived by doing sex work. So she met and she married a guy named Fred McFall, who was just back from World War II in 1945. And they had two daughters together, but they were uneasy parents. One child was raised by relatives. The other was given up for adoption. So Dorothea said that she later had twin daughters with another partner who, according to her, had apparently committed suicide as teenagers just one week apart. But Puente may have been given to telling tales. She claimed to have spent time as a raquette where her career ended tragically when she was knocked off the stage and broke her leg. She claimed to have hobnobbed with California governors like Jerry Brown and even Ronald Reagan saying she and Nancy never got along. (laughs) None of this is true. Is it? None of it's true. Serial killers, psychopaths are prone to grandiose thoughts about Mm -hmm. themselves, about their world. Mm -hmm. That's who they are. That's what they do. It's all part of the narcissism umbrella. Everything's about them. Look at me. Look at me. But anyway... The Rockettes thing, there's no evidence of that. And yes, there are pictures of her with politicians, but we're talking about fundraising events. So there's thousands of pictures with people and the same politicians. So she's taking this stuff, adding her pathological lying to it. Yeah, that's what psychopaths do. But anyway. Off my soapbox, continue for it. <laughs> so by 1948, Dorothea and Fred had split up. Dorothea had actually served four months in jail for forging checks. And a few years later, she ended up marrying this guy named Axel Johansson. And that marriage lasted about a decade and a half and was marred by alcoholism and infidelity. Johansson actually had committed Dorothea to an asylum and had put her on antipsychotics for a time. So after being released from the asylum, Dorothea spent some more time in jail for using sex work to get by. And by the age of 39, she ended up marrying a 23-year-old named Roberto Puente. So by the following year, now 1969... They had separated, and Dorothea opened her first venture, an unofficial drug and alcohol rehab center in Sacramento. And the money poured in. She built relationships with social workers, earning their trust. She cared for tough people in a boarding house, dozens at a time, right? Right. Mentally ill people, elderly folks, 
unhoused people with nowhere else to go. I want to say that now let's go back to Kristen Gilbert, perfect poison girl that I wrote about. She volunteered at the homeless shelter. She Mm. ran the secret Santa program. So you see the parallels here with the females. So Dorothea was successful for most of the 70s until she began signing checks on her tenant's behalf and cashing them. Uh-huh. So she's getting greedy now. Right. It landed her five years on probation and an agreement that she'd never again run in a boarding house. But then with her livelihood gone, Dorothea turned to just outright theft. She met people in bars. She lied about her age to get older women to trust her. And when they did, Dorothea would drug and rob them. And this landed her back in jail for three more years. When she got out, she immediately opened another boarding house. She keeps raising the stakes. There is no lesson to learn for her. It's just what she can take from the world. So she quickly filled the house with tenants. She arranged to cash their checks for them. Social security, disability, things like that. According to Dorothea, she'd take out living expenses in the cost of living at the boarding house and give the tenants a small stipend to use for other expenses. This reminds me of that Netflix movie with Rosamund Pike recently called I Care A Lot, where it's like a messed up conservatorship program where you just pocket some of that money and leave them to suffer. It's Amy Archer Gilligan, really. Amy Archer Gilligan, who I wrote about, the arsenic and old lace woman, she took life care from people for a thousand bucks. You pay me a thousand, I take care of you for the rest of your life. No turnover, I create the turnover myself with lemonade and arsenic. So this is a modern version of Amy Archer Gilligan. Dorothea's case is what it is. Things went downhill before long. You know, some of the social workers who wards lived with Dorothea did not trust her. People that they had placed in her care were falling ill or going missing. Some had stopped sending her new tenants. But then there was the smell. Everyone Mm. in the neighborhood reported it. The stench of rot. And they knew where it was coming from, too. That blue Victorian house down the way. Now, here's Dorothea being the creative serial killing genius that she is. She'd blame it on different things. The sewer backed up. There were dead rats beneath the floorboards. I landscaped the yard and I treated the grass with fish emulsion. Things got so bad that her neighbors wouldn't even run their window air conditioning units on a hot day if the intake was downwind to Dorothea's house. Jesus. So her first victim was a woman named Ruth Monroe, a former business associate of Dorothea's. And Ruth had gotten sick within weeks of living at Dorothea's house. Her son had visited to find that his mom was drinking a concoction that Dorothea had given Ruth, supposedly to help calm her down. But within days, Ruth was dead. Ruth Monroe's death was listed as a suicide by overdose with codeine and acetaminophen in her bloodstream. It made no sense to her family, but what could they do? Dorothy was like the last person you'd expect. She looked like everybody's grandma in the 80s, short, white, curly hair, a small woman with a slight frame, these huge, big, big tortoiseshell glasses that covered about half her face, fitted with transitional lenses. She knew what she had going for her, so she knew it. She worked it. That was even one of her lines when police later questioned her. I didn't kill anybody, she told them. I'm an old lady. I couldn't drag a body. But despite her deep wrinkles, deep-set eyes, and sunken mouth, 
she was actually only 59 years old. Right. Well, it's crazy when you think about it, because, yeah, this is only a few years older than like Jennifer Aniston. And this is what caught my attention when I found out her age, because, again, if you look at her photo. Right. There's no question you would immediately think 75, 80, 85. She worked it. So she worked it. Yeah. She used that to her advantage. Serial killers are always thinking about the kill, about what they're going to do, how they're going to do it. That tape I talked about in the very top of the show, the loop, the fantasy. But not everyone was conned, though. A woman named Mildred Ballinger was a social worker who had known Dorothea for decades. She claimed that she had cancer, always in a new area of the body, and Ballinger quickly figured out that Dorothea was a liar, albeit not a very good one. Ballinger noticed that two wards who had boarded with Dorothea started getting worse, and they were dealing with unexplained illness. And later, some said that Dorothea couldn't have killed her tenants and that she just waited for them to die of natural causes without reporting their deaths. But Ballinger knew different. She told reporters she was just pure evil. For fuck's sake, how many times do we hear, oh, he was just pure evil? What does that mean? I've stared in the face of a psychopath who's taken many, 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 many lives, and I don't see evil or very, very bad. I see a shallowness, like this- Empty? Yeah. There's this glossy type of stare that a psychopath does, but pure evil is really not what people think it is. So a social worker, Judy Moyes- asked authorities to do a wellness check on a ward who missed his appointment with her. So they went to his last known address. Bert Montoya was a drifter with a history of psychotic episodes. They were told he'd gone to Mexico or maybe somewhere else. But Moyes wouldn't let his disappearance go. When Bert needed a place to stay, she was the one who had visited with Dorothea and taken a tour of the boarding house before suggesting Bert be cared for there. When the social worker couldn't get a straight answer about where Bert had gone, she filed a missing persons report. So then two detectives showed up at the door. As the police talked with Dorothea, a tenant named John Sharp quietly pressed a note into one of the officer's hands saying, she's making me lie for her. One of the things that also spoke to me about this case was how she did it. Because she's so small, she's frail, she's older. And it turns out that she took advantage of a mentally disabled tenant and used him to help her move the bodies and bury them in her backyard. Add one more notch of she's a disgusting human being to her canon. Between that and reports from neighbors about freshly upturned ground in the backyard, the two policemen were soon digging on her property. As one of the detectives was digging, he hit something hard. He thought he had hit a root from a big avocado tree in the yard. He kept on striking it, trying to break the root, but it wouldn't budge. Dorothea quietly watched them from her window, and there's no doubt this stimulated her. She enjoyed this part of it. A psychopath has an overabundant need for constant stimulation. So here she is, and Thinking she might get away with it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This, is, this is part of the game. This is part of the fantasy going for her. But that wasn't a root. No, no. They found what looked like pieces of a dress, and then they found what looked to be bits of leather. 
When the detective couldn't break the root, he started pulling and it came loose. A human femur wrapped in cloth. What about that leather that they had found? Well, the leather was actually mummified, decaying flesh. We've all seen it on TV on some documentary about ancient Egypt or some shit like that. Mummified flesh up close. I mean, I find it pretty interesting because, for one, if flesh is mummified in the right way, it holds all the shape and it does look like leather. Ooh. It does look like leather. So anyway, when Dorothea saw that they'd found human remains, she slapped her hands to her face in feigned shock and simply said, I don't know what to tell you. You would think that at that point, she at least would be prepared with something Like, oh my God, where did that come from? Like, what? Bodies in my backyard? You don't say, well, I don't know what happened. I don't know what what to tell you. I don't know how they got here, wink, wink. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about several bodies found in Dorothea Fuente's backyard. Over the next few days, seven bodies were unearthed in her yard. That's a cemetery. Each of the bodies was shown to have a high concentration of florazepam, a drug used in sleeping pills. So she Ah. killed these people. At least they didn't suffer. I mean... Hopefully. And they passed out. Okay. Yeah. What's mind-blowing is that the police didn't take her into custody right away. So I Dorothea can't that. filled her purse with about $3,500 oh, in God. cash and simply just walked out her front door. And she wound up staying in a motel in L.A. I, I mean, wait, why wasn't she arrested on the spot? I, seven bodies found in your yard. Right? There's no grounds to... Maybe bring you in to question you? I mean, what in the world? So the trouble police were having, according to them, was figuring out the identity of the bodies because they were transients or unwanted by others. Many of them didn't have any family looking for them. And then when we look at it later, we see that it's textbook serial killer victim profiling. I mean, male, female serial killer. This is what they do, you know. As police began to go through the house, they started finding social security cards, checks, and bank statements, all with different names. That's how they started the grisly task of identifying victims at 1426 F Street in Sacramento. They discovered Dorothea was cashing her tenant's social security checks for a total of about $5,000 a month. Police found a total of 60 checks cashed after her victim's deaths. Apparently, Dorothea couldn't lie low for very long. After just five days, she went out for a drink and was promptly turned in when one of the bar patrons recognized her and called the authorities. Yeah, she was probably trolling for her next victim. While they had talked at the bar, he told her he was getting some sort of disability check from the government. Dorothea went on to explain to him how he could fill out a little more paperwork and get a larger benefit. Right before she asked him to move in with her. (laughs) The night they met. Ugh, that's a red flag. Yeah, when Mrs. Doubtfire asks you to move in the night you meet, I mean, I'm out. (laughs) Needless to say, he was spooked, and when he went back to his hotel, turned on the news and realized who she was, he called the cops. Good for him. And then Dorothea was arrested and charged with nine counts of murder. 
Nine counts. That's a large body count. See, that's how it should work. Somebody saw something, heard something, and felt it was out of place and did the one thing you should do in that situation, made a call. Right. This dude saved lives. Absolutely. Most definitely his own. Dorothea's trial began in 1993. After five months and the state of California's longest deliberation to date, 24 days, Dorothea Puente was convicted of three murders and sentenced to life in prison without parole. Puente maintained her innocence until her death. Quote, they don't know all the facts. They've never talked to me. She told reporter Martin Coos in 2008. I highly doubt the police never talked to her. Anything she says is a lie. I right. mean, so we, we just disregard anything she says. Dorothea Puente died in the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla in 2011 at 82 years old. But she looked 150. Stop. Her case is really part of Sacramento lore at this point. I mean, there were T-shirts made in the 80s. You can go online on Amazon and buy a cookbook called Cooking with a Serial Killer, which has recipes written in Dorothea's own handwriting. This shit fucking disgusts me. The house itself has become a bit of a tourist attraction also. The couple that currently owns it now has it decorated and ready for an Instagram moment, basically, with crime tape. On the shower curtain. What the fuck is wrong with people? Yeah, well, that's a whole other episode. Well, I'm really, no, just for one second, I'm going to, I'm going to rage here because she killed all these people and they're giving tours to the house. I know. Cooking with a serial killer. So I'm going to have that book open on my counter. I'm going to oh be God. with my family and say, hey. Do yeah, not give me that as a present, please. We're eating chicken marsala tonight. Dorothy's favorite meal, chicken marsala, kids. Come up, sit down. Chicken mar- This is Dorothy's favorite meal. I mean, meal. it's messed up. The owners even put a mannequin dressed as a little old lady holding a shovel in the backyard. At one point, they gave tours of the house for $15 a pop. And they even allowed shows like Ghost Hunters to film an episode there. That's all very offensive. It's all very offensive to me. I'm not even going to go. So that is the story of Dorothea Puente. I mean, I'm glad we told this story because it's compelling. I mean, it's a compelling serial killer story. I can see the interest you had in it because it has many shocking elements and moving parts. And it's very cinematic, which I know you like. Right. That might be why I I was constantly (laughs) wondering, like, why hasn't this movie been made? You know, but there's like the element of elderly care, of the conservatorship connection That was very interesting to me, how she convinced someone to be able to bury that many bodies in her backyard. And it's not a big piece of land in Sacramento, if you look it up. You don't need much land. You just need a a, a big shovel. You just need to keep going down. That's all, you know. It's a crazy case. I'm glad she was finally found. I'm glad she lived out the rest of her life in jail. The unfortunate fact is that most people who are murdered are murdered by someone they know, right. a family member, a partner, a neighbor, a lover. It really is the person you least suspect, not just the wolf in sheep's clothing, but part of the flock. Right. Well, what makes Dorothea's case stand out is she's the one person you would least expect to do such a heinous crime. 
That was a great case, Everett. I appreciate you bringing it to the attention of this show. My pleasure. And so with that, we will see you all next week. See ya. Sources for today's episode come from The House is Innocent by Becca Van Sambeck, a Discover Magazine article by Cody Cotier, The Life and Deaths of Dorothea Puente by Martin Coos, and an Oxygen special, Murders at the Boarding House. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Christina Everett. Special thanks to our producer, Catherine Law, and audio engineer, Brandon Dickert. Research is by Marissa Brown. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.